Sridhar Ananda Krishnan is an associate professor in the Department of Geosciences in the College of Earth and Mineral Sciences, Earth and Environmental Studies Institute at Penn State. He first worked at Penn State as a research associate from 1992 to 1999, and returned in 2002 to serve at his current position. He received both his bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering, but while intending to pursue a PhD, he took a job working on a glacier in Antarctica for a year. It was that year of excitement and exploration that led him to change his studies to geosciences, in which he received his PhD in 1990. Dr. Krishnan's research focuses on glaciology and polar regions, along with Antarctic ice sheets and Antarctic tectronics. He has published multiple works on ice streams in recent years and has worked on many projects in Antarctica. In fact, if you ever get the opportunity to travel to Antarctica, be sure to check out the Ananda Krishnan Glacier, named for Dr. Ananda Krishnan by the United States Board on Geographical Names in 2003. Today, he will be talking with us about what we can learn from studying Antarctica's glaciers. Please join me in welcoming Sridhar Ananda Krishnan. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very nice introduction. Uh, and uh, if you do have a chance to travel to Antarctica and go to the Ananda Krishnan Glacier, tell me what it's like. I've never been there. So <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a glacier sort of uh, in a very remote place. And uh, it's, uh, it's in uh, satellite imagery. It uh, looks very nice, but uh, it's, it's hard to get to. Uh, 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 and so I, I haven't actually had a chance to set foot on it. Maybe one of these, one of these years I'll manage to make it there. Uh, and as I said, thank you for the introduction. I'm going to spend about 20 minutes, half an hour, showing you some, uh, some PowerPoint stuff, uh, some, some graphics, some images, uh, a few pictures. And then uh, uh, I'll uh, throw it open to questions. And any time along the way, if you have a question, please uh, feel free to, free to stop me. A, it, this is very, very casual, uh, pretty, uh, pretty simple. Can you all hear me, by the way? Uh, do I need to speak louder? All right, good. Um, as I said, uh, uh, or as the, the title says, it's Secrets Beneath the Ice. Uh, and, and, and we're going to be talking about, I'm going to talk a little bit about what the ice is in Antarctica and in Greenland, why it affects uh, the rest of us around the world, uh, and then uh, a little bit about the particular work that I do. Uh, I, I don't know if I'll appear on TV anymore, but uh, that's all right. Uh, disappear into the background. Uh, that's okay. The important stuff is up there. Uh, I'm at the uh, uh, department of, in the Department of Geosciences in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Center at Penn State, as, the, uh, 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 as you said in the intro. Uh, and if you want to know more about us, you can go to the Penn State Ice and Climate Exploration. Uh, we spent a lot of time, and this is the most impressive part of our work, is we managed to get an acronym that's really kind of cool, PSICE, Penn State Ice and Climate. And so uh, they, it's very easy to remember, www.psice.psu.edu. Uh, and, and there's more stuff on there. So please feel welcome, uh, feel free to go there. Um, there's really only one secret beneath the ice that is of any importance to you. Here it is, the thing. This is April 1st, so I had to do something like that. Uh, and, uh, and I see that, that uh, some of the folks in this uh, audience are perhaps of uh, 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 a slightly different generation, you might remember. This one, the original version of the thing was far better than the second one. So uh, <laughs> uh, it was all about uh, a, a monster in Antarctica. The monster in Antarctica is not uh, an alien, uh, but is in fact uh, uh, the continent itself. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. Uh, this is a uh, this is a, sort of a, a cartoon um, showing what Antarctica or Greenland or any large glacier looks like. And I want you to think of it as a bank account, not Bank of America or AIG, but hopefully a slightly more solvent bank account. Uh, one in which uh, there are deposits made on it every year by snowfall, and there are withdrawals from it every year um, by melting and by large icebergs breaking off the edge into the ocean and, and uh, disappearing off into the distance. In between, uh, these deposits flow, actually flow like taffy, or flow like honey, or flow like, pick your favorite soft and gooey substance, uh, from the interior uh, to the exterior of the continent, where they then melt and return to the ocean. Now, 
that bank account is intimately related to a second bank, which is over here, that's the ocean. The ocean also it acts like uh, a, a checking account in which there are deposits of water from the ocean, and there's withdrawals every year by evaporation. So water evaporates from there, is deposited over here, out it comes, and, and, and all is well. Now, to stretch this metaphor to its ultimate, and I'm, I'm not going to go past that, if you have a Ponzi scheme uh, where the deposits and, and, the, and the withdrawals are not matched, what happens is uh, that the glacier will shrink and the oceans will rise, or vice versa, the glaciers will get bigger and the oceans will get smaller. All right? The, these two are intimately related. These two systems are completely connected. If you want to know what sea level is going to do, you got to know what the glacier is going to do and vice versa. All right? And Today, things are more or less in balance. The glaciers receive as much every year as they uh, release back to the ocean, uh, except for a very small difference. And it's that small difference of about an inch in 10 years uh, that the great glaciers are shrink shrinking by and that sea level is rising by. That's a big picture, all right? Spent a lot of time on this graphic, but I think it's important to try and and, 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 and sort of indicate what the uh, connections are between a place that's quite remote and, and uh, 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 not very much visited and perhaps of, not of much importance unless you realize it's connected to the oceans and obviously we're all uh, connected to the oceans. Uh, here is uh, uh, a map of really the two large remaining uh, ice sheets on the planet. Uh, Antarctica is down here near the South Pole. Here's South America, and if you keep going south from South America, you'll run into the Antarctic Peninsula and eventually onto the main part of the, uh, of the continent. This is the biggest ice sheet uh, in the world today. And then up in uh, Greenland, the other bit of blue that I've drawn up there, uh, you have the other ice sheet, much, much smaller, but nevertheless significant. Uh, and there's a lot of ice, so these are the actual ice sheets that I had the cartoon of uh, just before. And what I ha have on the right-hand side is what the coastline looks like today in, uh, on the Gulf of Mexico, Florida, east coast of the U.S., and India, uh, Bay of Bengal, Bangladesh, and going around to, to Myanmar and, and then down the coast to India and Sri Lanka. And then these next two panels are effectively, if all of Greenland, if you were to withdraw, make full withdrawals from Greenland, take everything out of your bank of Greenland and dump it into the ocean, uh, sea, levels would, sea level would rise by about four to five meters or uh, about 20 feet, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. And if you can see, there's little red dots that I've drawn uh, showing the areas that would be inundated, that would be flooded. Uh, uh, Florida big chunk of the Florida, uh, uh, end of Florida, a uh, bunch of stuff around Louisiana, and then in India, an enormous swath of Bangladesh uh, where an enormous number of people live uh, would be affected if you were to withdraw everything from Greenland. If you were to withdraw everything from Greenland and Antarctica, which is not very likely in the next 500 years, but is certainly possible in the next few thousand years, uh, here's the uh, ultimate effect. The coastline would stretch way inland up the Mississippi Delta. Uh, it would stretch way inland along the whole eastern seaboard. Uh, I hope none of you have uh, holiday homes on the uh, Atlantic coast in New Orleans, uh, in uh, North Carolina. It would stretch way, way inland in Bangladesh and in India. And this is actually the most significant impact because there's probably something close to 500 million people that live in, in that red dot over and obviously they would be uh, displaced uh, and, and tremendously impacted. This is a photograph of uh, a glacier in Alaska, Muir Glacier, uh, taken about uh, 50 years ago, uh, 60 years ago, 1941, uh, standing on a rock looking up. If, uh, if you've never seen a glacier before, uh, it's, as I said, a mass of ice that flows down. 
uh, you get deposits of snowfall on it in the interior, and you get withdrawals of uh, snow and ice at the bottom over here, and in between the ice just flows from the one spot to the other. Uh, there's mountains on either side, and then you have this glacier that's flowing really effectively towards us. This photograph was taken in 1941. And here's that same photograph today, well, a few years ago, uh, 2004. Same glacier, but it's way, way, way back there. Must be about 20 miles back. And all of this area where this glacier used to be is now gone, and you just have ocean. The ocean is behind me, and the ocean has come, come flowing in and filled in that area. And really, all of this area used to have ice in it, and all that ice has melted. Where has it gone? It's gone into the ocean and uh, has resulted in sea level rising. Another example, uh, a little bit more recent. Uh, this is a photograph uh, or an image uh, taken uh, from satellites uh, down on the North Pole. So this is, this is the North Pole. There's Greenland over here. Canada comes around this way. Here's Alaska, and here's a Siberian um, uh, part of Russia and then Europe around there, just to orient you. So this is the, the, the Arctic Sea. And this is the coverage of sea ice. There's no land over here. This is just sea ice that's floating on the Arctic Ocean or the Arctic Sea. But in 1979 and all the years prior to that, uh, at the end of the summer, uh, this is what it would look like. Uh, and in fact, um, there was for a long, long time this uh, uh, search for the mythical Northwest Passage. People wanted to get from Europe, which is over here, uh, across to uh, the Pacific Ocean, which was over here. And uh, to get there, you had to sail all the way down the Atlantic to, the, to, to South America, go around the tip of South America, and then come back up here. And it was a very arduous and very dangerous journey. Uh, and, and so for a long time, people tried to get from the Atlantic uh, to the Pacific uh, through this part, but they couldn't make it because the ice was always there, always clogging all of the, uh, all of the routes. And it was first, uh, it was first navigated in uh, uh, 1902, uh, but with great difficulty. Uh, and, and, and the uh, explorer who did it, uh, Roald Amundsen, uh, actually took his ship in here, let it freeze in in the winter time, inched forward a little bit, let it freeze in again, inched forward a little bit, and then finally made it out. It was quite a, a heroic uh, uh, endeavor, but it was very, very difficult to do. Um, not so difficult anymore. Uh, this is what it looked like at the end of the summer in 2007. Again, same image, Greenland over here, the Atlantic Ocean over there, and now there's lots and lots of open space. This whole area is melted out, and uh, uh, the sea ice continues to shrink every year. As a matter of fact, um, there's a lot of interest, a lot of commercial interest. China and Japan, as you, as you full well know, are right over here, and they sell us, and Europe, a lot of uh, cars and machinery and whatnot. And it can go from China and Japan. Material can go to the uh, west coast of the US, California and Seattle and so on, very, very easily. To go to the east coast, they now have to go down. They're not all the way to South America. They have to go to Panama and take the Panama Canal over. But uh, there's a lot of interest in actually sending uh, shipping across through the Northwest Passage. Uh, um, and this is of great concern to a lot of people for a number of reasons, environmental reasons and political reasons. Right now, all of that has been such frozen wasteland, nobody's worried about it, but now it's become, it's a, the new gold rush is up there. This, I hope you can see it, an institute. And in goes Lisa and Marge, the science of SpongeBob, along they go. Water acidity is fascinating. Global warming. Press button to see what global warming will do in the next three years. Marge says, three years is a long time. If you ever watch The Simpsons, you'll understand the, the humor of it. Unfortunately, this does not have a, I couldn't figure out the, the outlet to it, so I had to relate all of the words for you. This is uh, in South India, 
place called Mahavalipuram. Uh, magnificent temple complex uh, right on the beach. Uh, these beautiful carved uh, uh, nandis, the, the, the sacred cow of India, uh, and, and, and in the background, the uh, uh, Bay of Bengal. Um, just an incredible place, but right at sea level. Here's uh, uh, this, this wonderful elephants, all just carved right out of the rock. These wonderful temples there, uh, and another temple uh, with uh, all of the pillars carved out. All of this would, would just be gone. Uh, there's my dad there for a scale. He's about two meters high. And so uh, the, uh, 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 if Greenland were to melt, Greenland has about four meters of water in it, and, the, and, and then the, the ocean would come up to somewhere around here, and all of these things would be gone. A little bit closer to home, uh, this is New Orleans. This is a photograph uh, taken from space. Uh, this is Lake Pontchartrain here, uh, and, and the city of New Orleans over here before Katrina. Um, as, as a lot of you probably know, New Orleans is uh, well below sea level, and so uh, they have to build these very complex set of levees along, the, uh, along Lake Pontchartrain and, and along the Mississippi River to keep the ocean, keep the water out. Uh, after Katrina, uh, uh, this is the famous uh, 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 9th Street Canal here. This breached and, and all the water flooded into all these areas into, the, uh, uh, into that part of New Orleans. So uh, quite dramatic. And if you were to raise this ocean level uh, uh, as Greenland melts, as Antarctica melts, obviously those levees would have to rise higher. Um, so I said I'd tell you about beneath the ice, secrets beneath the ice. Uh, this is uh, sort of just another cartoon, but where I've taken that glacier and I've sliced it off. I've just uh, uh, cut off uh, uh, so that we can look at it from the side, just a cartoon. Again, uh, you get deposits of snowfall in the interior. You get withdrawals of uh, ice and and, and so on at the coast where the ocean is and in between the glacier flows. And to understand what Antarctica and Greenland would do if you were to raise temperatures in the ocean, raise temperatures in the air, change snowfall, do all the different things that the, that the, that the, that the world is doing today, uh, we need to understand what's underneath the glacier. Because the way this glacier flows, the way this taffy, or, or I forget what other analogy I used before, the uh, uh, way this ice flows from one spot to another, it slides over whatever's underneath, and we need to know what that is. Is it rock? Is it sediments? Is there water down there? What's going on? All right? And the way we do our work is we can only, we can only access the surface. We can fly airplanes and land on the surface, uh, and then uh, we uh, use uh, instruments to tell us how thick the ice is and what's underneath. Here's a photograph from space of the Greenland ice sheet and one of the glaciers going into it. Uh, this uh, picture is about uh, 50 miles across, so that's a big old glacier. And on the surface, I don't know if you all can see it, but there's all these little blue dots all over. These little blue dots, each of those is a big melt pond. Water collects on the surface. This is all ice, but it gets so warm in Antarctica, in Greenland, on the surface, that the water collects in these big ponds on the surface. And here's a photograph looking from an airplane window down. And I'll zoom in a little bit. Here's a, uh, another one. There's a stream running. This is all ice over here. It's not land, but there's streams of water still running over the ice. And they collect in these, um, they collect in these ponds. There's a sort of big arcuate pond filled with, filled with blue water, a uh, little bit of a close-up of it. Uh, and the reason we worry about these is that once a year or a few times a year, this big, these big ponds actually break right through the glacier to the bottom and they drain. And you form these enormous chasms. There's a couple of people standing far too edge of, far too close to the edge. Uh, and this was taken by uh, Sarah Doss, a former student at Penn State who's now at the Woods Hole Institute. And, uh, and, and these lakes, they drain and they, they create these enormous chasms as they're draining, and they go right through the glacier to the, to the bottom of the glacier. 
and they form what we call moulins, where uh, the lake is at the top, it drains, and it cracks and breaks the glacier all the way through, goes to the bottom, and then the water spreads across there. And when it does that, then this glacier flows a little bit faster. When it flows a little bit faster, that means your withdrawals are going to be larger, all right? As soon as your withdrawals start to get larger, then sea level can rise a little bit faster. So this is of great concern and interest to us, and we need to know what's underneath here. We use these little uh, airplanes. Uh, uh, they're called twin otters. Uh, uh, you can see a person over there standing next to it. Sort of like the size of the little puddle jumpers that we use between here and Dulles Airport or going to Philadelphia or to Pittsburgh. Uh, they've got skis on them, uh, and, uh, and they can take off uh, from regular concrete runways, but then they can land right on the ice, and, and, and that's what we use for our, for our work. This is the inside of that. Not quite, well, there's no flight attendant there offering us juice and coffee, but uh, we have our snowmobile, our sleds, all our scientific instruments all jammed in there, and the pilot uh, looks at it and says, good heavens, you want to take all of that? And then he takes off anyways because he's Canadian, and Canadians don't worry so much about things like regulations and whatnot. So. <laughs> all right, just to remind you again, um, this is our uh, map of Antarctica or Greenland or any old glacier. Uh, you get uh, uh, deposits of snowfall on it. It flows, and the speed at which this flow goes uh, determines how fast withdrawals are made from this bank of Greenland or bank of Antarctica. And that, uh, those withdrawals, if, if uh, those meltwater ponds start to break through more uh, often because of uh, climate change and because of warming, then these withdrawals will become more frequent and larger, and Greenland will, or Antarctica will shrink and oceans will rise. This is what the world has done over the last, oh, 150 years or so. This is today on the right, and about 1850, the beginning of the Industrial Age. On the left, this is when we first uh, figured out that we could run machines with uh, coal and natural gas and petroleum uh, very effectively. Well, petroleum was over here, but certainly coal uh, and all those other things were down here. And uh, during that time, sea level has risen by, oh, something like half an inch, maybe a little bit more. Global average temperatures have risen by half a degree, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, uh, as a consequence of all of the carbon dioxide that the burning uh, of, of the coal and the burning of the petroleum and the burning of the natural gases puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That carbon dioxide then traps heat and uh, uh, temperatures rise. When temperatures rise, then our Bank of Greenland and our Bank of Antarctica start to uh, put out their, uh, their, their money more quickly and sea level starts to rise. This is what the future is going to look like. So what I told you before was the past. That's from here down. On the left, on the right, we don't know what the future is going to look like, but we're almost certain it's going to be one of these upper curves. This is temperature in the vertical direction. So in the last 150 years, temperatures have gone up by half a degree or so. In the next 100 years, we expect the average temperature around the world to go up by something like another degree to a degree and a half to two degrees, and if we're really unlucky, three and four degrees. Now, these are not the degrees you and I are used to. These are degrees centigrade. Uh, and so to turn them into real degrees, multiply by more or less two, all right? And so uh, this is uh, two degrees of centigrade. That's about four degrees Fahrenheit, more or less. Three degrees centigrade, more or less six degrees of Fahrenheit. That's a lot of, of average global warming. Well, that's that's bad enough as it, as it is, average. Uh, I hope uh, some of you at least uh, listened to uh, uh, Gary. Oh, dear, this didn't work out very well at all. Um, can we turn the lights on off just for this one? I don't know if you'll be able to see it or not. If you all listen to uh, uh, Garrison Keeler on uh, Prairie Home Companion, Lake Wobegon, where all the children are above average. Well, uh, 
we don't all get average temperatures. Some people are above average. And as it turns, around, turns out, all of the human beings on this planet are above average. All of the continents where people live actually warm a lot more than the oceans where the people don't live. And so the average temperature around the planet is going to go up by, let's say, three degrees, four degrees, something like that. But in fact, the continents, Africa, Australia, Asia, North and South, those are going to warm by more than twice that amount. And you can't see the amount here because this, everything is washed out on this scale. But nevertheless, uh, uh, that, that's the, that's the take-home take message of that plot. Which, uh, you can turn that back on. Thank you. You can come and, after, after this talk, you can come and look at my screen where it still does look good. And you can donate a little bit of money to Research Unplugged so you can buy a better projector. This is Antarctica. This is a glacier. It's actually an ice shelf. It's about 50 miles across. It's a pretty big chunk of ice. And on the 31st of January 2002, this is what it looked like. And on the 7th of March of the same year, this is what it looked like. It just collapsed. It just disintegrated in, in about a month's time. It was an extraordinary event. Uh, so the point of this is that the system is capable of very, very rapid changes in response to those meltwater pools forming on the surface and the ocean warming below. It just melted this whole thing, and it was all uh, uh, right at the edge of falling apart. And then some small event came along, and we're not quite sure what, that, uh, that just made it all just fall to pieces. It's quite, quite dramatic. And we're afraid that things like more stuff like this will continue to happen. Uh, I'm just going to end with a few pictures. Uh, uh, the reward for sitting through all of the stuff that I've done up till now. This is a picture of Antarctica. I don't know who that is. All you need to know is it's cold. <laughs> it's cold in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, this is a, actually the South Pole Station. This is right on the glacier. Uh, the South Pole, the ice is uh, almost two miles thick. So this is sitting on two miles of ice. There's two miles of ice directly below it. The South Pole Station is very, very near the geographic South Pole. The only, almost the only way to get here is to fly in. Uh, it's very, very far from, from almost anything else. Nice new modern station. It was built uh, just over the last decade at uh, enormous expense and effort, uh, but very much worth it. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, station. All the amenities of, uh, of life on the inside, but you need them when you're so isolated. People spend uh, the full winter here where it's dark and cold and they have no connection to the outside world. This is at the coast. Uh, at the coast of Antarctica, a place called McMurdo Station, Antarctica. Uh, it's the main U.S. base there. And once a year, a big old icebreaker comes in, uh, breaks the ice there, resupplies the station, really just pumps. Uh, uh, there's another ship following it, which is just a big old tanker that gives gasoline or, or uh, diesel fuel to run the station, keep it warm through the winter, bring in food and supplies and so on. And, and in the background, you can see what's called Observation Hill, um, uh, which is a sort of a local landmark. And you can see there's no trees there. There's no nothing else. Ocean's on the right. And there's penguins and seals, but no land animals. Uh, this is the Odin. Uh, actually, this is the polar star coming in. And you can see it breaks right, breaks right through the ice. This is a cover of ice that's maybe 10 feet thick, maybe a little bit less. And this, uh, this ship actually just breaks the, a channel through there. And then other ships will follow in its wake, and they can supply the station. Without that icebreaker, uh, you couldn't get in. And they're hoping to build a new, new icebreaker, because the, this one is quite old. There's uh, 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 minke whales, uh, and, and they, they love the open water around there. The Antarctic is incredibly prolific in wildlife, because the waters are cold. The fish, uh, there's more oxygen in the water because the water is cold. And the fish absolutely love it. Fish love it. Other critters that eat fish love it. And it's all, everybody's happy. Uh, this is where we uh, do our work. We don't live in those fancy uh, uh, buildings and, and stations. We actually work right up on the ice sheet in small groups of four people, six people, eight people. And we live in these tents through the summer, only the summer, which is still cold. 
but nevertheless uh, quite adequate to, to survive in one of these. We do our cooking in the tents and, and even inside you have to wear your full polar gear. Unfortunately, it doesn't get warm enough on the inside to really warm up uh, gloves and everything else. Uh, and these are our facilities. Uh, this is how we move around, uh, get to Antarctica, big Air Force airplane. This one happens to have wheels. Uh, others that we use uh, have, uh, have skis on them uh, uh, and can take off and land right on the, right on the ice itself. Uh, these are uh, what are called LC-130s. If you ever watch the news uh, and, and uh, uh, look for any trouble spot around the world, uh, you'll see C-130s uh, there. They're still very much in use. Almost every country owns one. They're sort of the workhorse uh, cargo airplane. They're noisy as, as all get out on the inside and miserably uncomfortable, but they get the job done. That's a beautiful continent. That's a glacier. It's a Ketlitz glacier flowing towards us. Transantarctic mountains uh, to left and right. Uh, the glaciers have cut their way through the mountains. They're coming out to the ocean over here. There's our bank in full view. Uh, here's another just nice photograph, Transantarctic Mountains, big old glaciers flowing from left to right through them. Uh, this is a glacier flowing down towards us. As it flows along, if it flows over some bedrock obstacle, then the surface will actually crack and break and you form big crevasses that you can't, um, that you can't drive over. And I will leave you with my favorite Bob Dylan quote, the waters around you have grown, except that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. For the times, they are a-changing. Uh, and just many thanks to all of my friends at, uh, in the department and, and elsewhere, Richard Alley, Don Voigt, uh, who's here, thank you, Don, Paul Winberry, Rebecca, Hugh, Luke, Byron, Ryan, Joe, Dave, Dave, Derek, Knut, Randy, Leo, Peter, students, postdocs, uh, faculty, lots of great people. It's just, I don't, you might want to turn off C-SPAN for this because we don't want people in Harrisburg to hear. Penn State actually pays me to do this. I can't believe it. Every morning I wake up and say, good heavens, I'm getting a salary for doing this. Uh, and if they hear what a great time we're having, they might take that away. So uh, uh, it's, just, it's just been a great, great, wonderful time. If you want more information, you can go here, find my email. I'd like to thank NSF, National Science Foundation. We couldn't do this without them. Uh, they're really a wonderful, wonderful agency, uh, uh, very, uh, uh, the most efficient and the most um, uh, useful part of the federal government, in my opinion. So, uh, and then, of course, Penn State, uh, thank them for, for all their support. And then the Center for Remote Sensing of Ice Sheets, which is a, a group that I'm a, a part of as well. So thank you very much. And So uh, this, I think the uh, question Roy is asking is uh, uh, this. Graphic that I showed you of the destruction of, of this uh, ice shelf uh, breaking up. Where was this? And this was, uh, let's see if I can find a map. I think I had one early on. If I don't have, oh, here it is. This, this one well, um, so this is Antarctica. This, that ice shelf was in Antarctica, and it was actually, it was a place called the Larsen B Ice Shelf, which is up on the Antarctic Peninsula, this uh, sort of finger of, of the continent that sticks up north, uh, goes up north towards South America. That's called the Antarctic Peninsula, and it's the part that's changing the most rapidly because it's the farthest north and the most open to influence of the warming of the, uh, uh, of the southern oceans. The rest of the continent is actually relatively stable. There isn't that much change in the main part of the continent. We think that will not remain the case in 50 or 100 or 500 years, uh, that the whole continent is very much in danger of having its uh, deposits uh, be withdrawn at a very rapid rate over the next uh, 500 years. 
it's Greenland that we have to worry about. The only part of Antarctica we have to worry about is the peninsula, but there's not that much ice there. So the question is, uh, how certain are we that the, that the climate change uh, that we're seeing now and the warming that we're seeing now is human-induced, anthropogenic? It's due to our burning of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, hydrocarbons, of fossil fuels. Um, so there was a report by the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the UN body, uh, that came out about uh, a year ago uh, in January of 2008, I think it was, and uh, as a result of it, a bunch of people got Nobel Prizes, uh, a bunch of them in our, in our, at Penn State, uh, uh, the IPCC got a Nobel Prize for it. In that report, and in a number of other p places, uh, their conclusion is it, we are highly uh, confident. And when scientists say something like highly confident, you can take it to the bank. Uh, it's very, very uh, uh, seldom that, that we'll say something like that. I'm highly confident that when I let go of this, pen, uh, of this watch, it's going to uh, fall to the ground. Uh, I'm not going to say it's absolutely 100% certain that it will fall to the ground, but I'm highly confident that it is going to do that. And that, it is at that level that, that the IPCC uh, uh, indicated that they're highly confident that uh, global warming, that climate change is due to, uh, uh, that due to human-induced uh, uh, hydrocarbon burning. I'm interested. Oh, I'm interested to know what kind of soil is underneath all of that ice. Is, are, is it volcanic soil, or what is the nature of the ground underneath? Okay. The, the ice? So the question is, what's the nature of the soil underneath? Gosh, we'd all like to know. <laughs> I, that is that is the secrets beneath the ice. That that is what we do uh, is try to find out what's underneath there. We know what it is in a few selected places, uh, but it is all covered with ice, and there's only a few places where that rock sticks up, and those are somewhat anomalous. But 99 percent of the continent is completely terra incognita. We have no idea what's underneath there. We have some inferences. We can look at the rocks along the coast and extrapolate way inland. But that's like, it's as if I were to look at the rocks on 322 in, you know, that you can see those wonderful limestone outcrops on 322. Look at those and say, ah, I know what the rocks in Denver look like. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's the, the scale. You know, I can look at the rocks along the continent here, and then I need to know what the rocks are underneath the South Pole. I can't extrapolate, because knowing what the rocks are in State College doesn't tell me anything about the rocks in Denver. Uh, and so it's a, it's, it's a wonderful question. Uh, the, about the only, there's two or three ways you can, you can find out what the rocks are underneath there. One is you can drill a hole right through the ice and then pull up a piece of the rock. Expensive. Uh, you get a tiny little piece of rock that might or might not be uh, representative of the whole area. Uh, the other thing is you can do what uh, my colleagues and I do, which is um, to set off a sound wave at the surface. The sound wave travels down through the ice, hits the rock, and then comes back to us. And then we can get some idea about what the type of rock is by interpreting that echo uh, from the end. It's not certain, but it gives us a little bit more. So it's a wonderful question, but unfortunately the answer is we don't know. Uh, so the, the, the holes can be drilled right through the ice, and in some places it's as much as two miles uh, thick. In Greenland, uh, people have drilled all the way through. In Antarctica, in a few places, people have drilled all the way through. The, right now, there's a, 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 a drill that's being run in the middle of Antarctica. It's been running for the last three years. It's going to go for two more years. So these are big, big projects, lots of people, lots of money. And as I said, you only get one bit of rock information. The type of information you do get is uh, the history of the planet, because there's layers in the ice uh, that preserve what the world looked like uh, 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 years ago. 
And, and, and it's for that reason that most of these holes are filled. In your very first slide, there was a mysterious pyramidal or just triangular okay. shape. What was that? Uh, that was very mysterious. That, that's right. That interesting was, that looking. Was, that was where the thing comes roaring out of the ice. This one. That's a tent. <laughs> yeah. This is a this is a little round tent, and this is a sort of a triangular, so it's sort of a sort of a teepee shaped thing. Yeah, they're called they're called polar tents or Scott tents, and yeah, right. No, no, no. This is where the thing comes out, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the question is, what happens when these ice sheets melt, whether that changes the really more generally other tectonics? Do earthquakes increase in, in, in uh, number? Do, uh, do, do volcanoes increase in number? Probably not a whole lot. Um, one way to think about uh, ice is um, ice weighs just a little bit less than water, 90% less. Uh, and so a mile of ice is like having a mile of water. And, and most of the oceans of this planet are a few miles thick, two, three miles thick on average. And so really it's not an enormous amount of weight that's being added or released. Now, um, people have found that, that you do get a small increase in earthquakes when, uh, for example, if you build a dam or, or, or build a big reservoir and fill it with water, you'll change the seismicity, the number of earthquakes in the area. Uh, but it's not a large number. It's not a big, big change. And volcanoes, same way. It's unlikely that there'll be a huge change in volcanoes. Uh, my question is, uh, I, 15 years ago, I had a presentation that I attended up in Albany, and it could have been the same presentation. 15 years ago. Maybe it was, yeah. All right, right in the same presentation. But what annoys me about scientists in general oh dear. is that <laughs> they don't provide solution other than the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Right. But there are some real world solutions that blue skyers have come up with and no scientist is willing to stand up and say, well, if you drag the icebergs into Canada create an artificial bay, you're going to provide enough water to refeed the Great Lakes, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. So you must have your own pony. What, what, what's your pony? So, so there's a, uh, we have three ponies and they're all at home right now. They're eating us out of house and home, but they are there. Uh, so the question is, what can we do about this more, more generally? And uh, so we're putting a lot of CO2 up in the atmosphere and, and that's trapping heat and that's causing all the things that we're talking about. You can do it, you can do it one of two ways. You can put up less into the atmosphere, or that which you put, put in, uh, you can pull out. So the first is, is conservation, uh, uh, driving less, uh, encouraging our uh, legislators to do something about uh, increasing fuel efficiency standards. Um, that's only gonna take us so far, unfortunately. Um, and, and moving to alternative forms of energy, all very, very important things. But the, those, all those things together are going to take us so far. Plus, there, there's uh, developing countries like India and China who look around and say, gosh, from the Industrial Revolution, 1850 to 1950, you guys had a party. Uh, and, and, and you increased the standard of living of your folks real well. We'd like to have that same party going forward. And you can't blame them, uh, unfortunately. Uh, they, they want to industrialize. They want cars. They want everything else. So putting less into the air, I think, is going to be a little bit difficult. Pulling it out, pulling this CO2 out of the air and, and pumping it back into the ground seems to be the most viable uh, uh, thing. I mean, that's what people are talking about. And, and, and it's got enormous problems with it. There's not enough room. It's hard to pull it out. All these other things. But uh, at some point, we're going to have to start thinking about that. Um, there's all sorts of other, what they call geoengineering projects, where they go off and they have these really extraordinarily um, uh, uh, bold, visionary ideas about basically building an umbrella between us and the sun, or you know, crazy stuff, but, but who knows, maybe some of it will work. 
uh, I can't evaluate those, uh, but uh, my, my readings of history is uh, that there are these things called unintended consequences. <laughs> and people think they're doing one thing and they end up messing with something entirely different. So I, I would cast a skeptical eye on, on very large projects of that kind. I don't know what the answer is. I'm un unfortunately, we are in, in a world of hurt, uh, hurt to come in the next 500 years uh, uh, to 1,000 years, and, and I certainly hope something is done. We have to do it pretty quickly, but I, there's no clear-cut solution right now. There really isn't. There are people working hard on it, but I don't think that we know yet. So the ice formed on, on Antarctica, and the second question is, uh, with these research stations, there shouldn't they be in the forefront of exploring and developing solar power instead of dragging in uh, fossil fuel? Yep. So the twofold question: one is. How long has the ice been there, and and shouldn't these uh, shouldn't these people walk the walk and talk the talk? Uh, so uh, the first part of it is the ice has probably been there for between eight and ten million years. So about that time, maybe as old as fifteen million years ago, uh, this the carbon dioxide levels on this planet, for natural reasons, uh, started to to drop, and they dropped low enough that the Earth cooled. So about 15 million years ago, there was much more CO2 in the atmosphere, and the world was a much warmer place. And then for natural reasons, uh, CO2 started to drop, and it got cold. About then, uh, the ice, ice sheets start to form in Antarctica, and they've been on Antarctica ever since. So we've had, we've, they've grown and shrunk. And so on. The second part of it is, shouldn't we be using uh, um, different uh, energy uh, methods? There's two problems with that. One is a very simple one. It's dark in Antarctica for half the year. Uh, you just can't have a solar panel. You'd have to have a big battery bank uh, that you would charge with the solar panel in the summer because there's lots of sunlight in the summer, but in the winter it's dark. But there's far fewer people in there, so you could almost do it. Um, and we hope we will get there. Uh, the second problem is that fossil fuel Gasoline is actually an extraordinary, a magical substance. It, it, it encapsulates so much energy in one gallon, uh, far more than almost anything else on this planet, except probably a nuclear reactor. I mean, there's just, in that one gallon of gasoline that you, that you can just haul around like this, you can drive your car, this behemoth, you know, 3,000 pound thing, you can move it. Uh, uh, for, for 50 or, or, or 60 miles. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. And there is no other substance out there where for five or six pounds you can move a car that distance. So for all of its drawbacks, and its biggest drawback is that it puts carbon dioxide into the air and, 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 and we got to do something about it, and that's a huge drawback. It's a, it's a uh, it, it, it's non-negotiable that we got to do something about it. It is still an extraordinarily efficient substance for, 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 for producing energy. And so that's why you can take a, quote, little bit of gasoline, you know, maybe a million gallons or something like that, which is small, really, in, in one sense, put it in Antarctica, and, and, all, and you can do everything you want to do for a year. So it, it's, a, it's efficient in one sense. But... In another sense, it's a terrible, terrible substance. All these, there's no clear-cut answers for any of this. Uh, summer there being the, 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 the South Pole is uh, a lot colder than summer in the North Pole at, at the same latitude, at the same distance, uh, for a couple of reasons. It is, it is different. Uh, 
uh, and but not because the, the amount of sunlight is different, but because um, if you look at the southern continent or the southern hemisphere, there's all ocean all the way around here. If you look at the northern hemisphere, the northern the North Pole, you have a little bit of ocean, but you mainly have land all the way around. And land is a lot better at warming up. So when sun shines on rock, it's darker colored, it warms up nicely. Sun shines on the ocean, not so much. Uh, sun shines on ice, not so much. All that energy gets reflected back. And so things tend to stay colder down here because there's really just no rock here to warm up. That's the first reason. The second is there's something called the circumpolar uh, or the circumantarctic circulation. Uh, there's actually a current that, that, that just goes around and around because there's no blockages. There's no blockages anywhere. There's a gap between South America and Antarctica. There's a gap between Africa and Antarctica. There's a gap between Australia. And so this, nothing impedes the flow of water around here. And so the water just goes around in big circles like this. And so warm water that's trying to get in from uh, northern latitudes can't get in. It gets deflected and carried, carried off, and it never warms up. Whereas the, the same is not true up here. Here we have uh, warm water that's warmed in the, in, in the tropics, comes up along the east coast of the U.S., and goes way up here before it finally starts to sink down, which is why Europe is so warm, because these warm waters from the, from the tropics can make their way up there. Same is not true over here. So it's a really good question, but the, the amount of sunlight is the same. Everything's the same. You, you know, the two are very symmetrical, but it's still much colder in the south. Well, I'm going to have to take off here in a minute. So I thank you very much for, for showing up. And uh, if you have any questions, go to my website. Oh, wow, great. Thank you.